I'm not sure I can think of a more fundamental question or something that would be more fundamental to humankind than what about authority? Who has it? Where is it? How does one act in relationship to authority? And occasionally in human history, uh, everybody has to stop and ask where now is authority? So for instance, if you think of the transition between what you might think of as pre-modern times, times when the church really had authority and truth and revelation was thought to be given from God to the church and so the church held truth and the church defined truth and the church dispensed truth to everybody else. Well, everything's going fine until some guys like Galileo and Newton and Descartes and Copernicus and people like that start coming around and you have the advent of science and everybody has to wonder where now is authority? Because now you have this clash, this massive clash of worldviews that makes one has to stop and ask the question, where now is authority? And then of course in the last generation or two as we've had the advent of what's often called postmodernism which just simply means that which is coming after modernism and is critiquing modernism, it now causes everybody to ask again, where now is authority? And I wanna just explore that for a bit this morning, but with a very specific reference. To the reference of what is the authority for spiritual formation? What is the role of the Bible? What is the role of Christian authority in spiritual formation and how it works and has been working in our Lenten practices. Eugene Peterson says that the Christian scriptures are the primary text for Christian spirituality and that Christian spirituality in its entirety is rooted in and shaped by scripture. So that in a sense, spiritual formation is simply discovering and living into the vision we find in the, in the story of scripture. But let's just stop and, I want us to stop and think about this for a minute, and, and now I'm gonna insert just a little twist, like a spice, you know, a little twist of lemon. I wanna insert here just a little twist of apologetics. Because I know that what goes on in our heads today is, can we really have confidence in the authority of scripture? I mean, it's one thing for Peterson to just assert that. And probably most of us in this room would buy it, except for, the places maybe where it challenges the most broken parts of us that we're not yet ready to let go of, and then we start maybe wondering about the real authority of Scripture. But let's also put just a, a twist of apologetics, too, because certainly we're living in a time that's asking the question, where now is authority? And I can guarantee you, if you went out on the streets, you went down to Hollywood and Vine with the microphone and, and, and played word association and said authority, I can guarantee you, you're gonna go a long time before anybody ever says back to you the Bible or the Holy Scriptures. So there's a bit of an apologetics twist in this. So when we say something like the authority of Scripture, I like the way Tom Wright puts it. He says the phrase the authority of Scripture can make Christian sense only if it's shorthand for the authority of the triune God. Somehow, that triune God exercises his authority through Scripture. So I want, you to, I want to just quickly walk you through this bit of logic, because I think it's very important that you be able to hold this in your head and heart. First, all authority is God's authority. That's what the Scriptures teach. 
So whatever authority is and whatever authority comes through the Bible, it's God's authority because God, who spoke everything into existence, is the only true authority there is. So then we have to ask, well, what's the purpose and character of God's authority? And the purpose and character of God's authority shows up to be something like this, the the loving, wise, creating, redeeming God. That's the nature of his authority. But now, and and you're going to have to hang with me here for a second, how in the Bible, that is to say, hold your Bible in your hand, how in that Bible does God exercise his authority? And it turns out that he exercises his authority through human agents who are anointed and equipped by the Holy Spirit. That's how God sort of gets his authority across. But now this, we come to sort of the bottom line question, how does God exercise authority through the Bible? So there's a way that he exercises authority in the Bible, but how now through this, in 2012, when nobody believes anything, and most, most human beings don't have a clear sense of where now is authority, and they wouldn't typically look here, because they think it's just full of dogma and old-fashioned rules that really don't make any sense for modern human societies. They might have made sense for ancient societies, but I'm not even sure about that. But they certainly don't have anything to say now. I mean, brain theory has sort of debunked everything that this might say about sexuality and and certainly... um, uh, you know, what we know now about modern quantum physics sort of debunks things that are said in here. And so how in the world can God, now remember that little logic that I walked you through, how can God, who is the source of all authority, express his authority through that Bible? And it turns out to be something very specific, very winsome, very loving, very generous, very hospitable, because it turns out that his authority is expressed through the Bible in inviting us to participate in its story. It's not the invitation of giving mental assent to a bunch of dogma. Now, I got to say, A, um, I ditched school all that I possibly could in junior high and high school, uh, so I didn't even go to English class that much, and B, I have no natural bent towards literature, So I know almost nothing about Shakespeare, but I know enough to know this. And some of you who know a little bit more about Shakespeare can hang with me here. It works something like this. What if we discovered a six-act Shakespearean play that no one had ever heard of before, no one had ever found, but these Shakespearean enthusiasts find it, and the first four acts are there, and the sixth act is there. So we know everything that's been happening, and we have this one act that tells us how it's all going to end, but the fifth act is missing. So we know something about the plot line. We know something about the characters who have come before us. We know something of what's going on, and we know exactly how it's going to end. In a renewed heaven and a renewed earth with God's people working with him. And so the authority of Scripture is to say, And this is going to scare you a little bit, but good. Improvise. Take your little life and immerse it in the Scripture and get it filled with the Holy Spirit and find your place in that fifth act. Improvise. Because there's nothing in there that says Joe Smith from, you know, 
Madison, Wisconsin, here's what I want you to do. You're not going to find it there. What you're going to find is its rhythms, its purposes, its routines, its plot lines. You're going to find out what the good guys did and the bad guys did and how they comported their lives with that or not. And then it calls out to us. The authority of the Bible is find a way to live in alignment with what's going on here. Now, it doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't make propositions. That is to say, state things that are really, you know, compatible with the way things actually are. But that's, you can't reduce the authority of the Bible to that because that's not what it intends to do. That's why I walked you through that logic. <clears throat> if the authority of Scripture, that phrase means anything, it means because there's an authoritarian triune God and he's up to something. And he's telling us that story in the Bible and inviting us to live into it. So we read the Bible to understand its plot line so that, and this to me is right at the heart of spiritual formation, so that our roles come naturally and easily to mind. I mean, this just comes to my mind because I'm on my sick mind, but uh, you can't be Bernie Madoff and be a Christian. You can't. And you just can't be sleeping with everybody you possibly can and be a Christian in the sense of somebody who's trying to serve and love others because they see that naturally and easily, that's what this plot line shows. This plot line shows that I would never use others for my benefit. I'm an ambassador of Christ's kingdom. I'm a servant. And so my sense of myself, it just naturally and easily rules out most of this stuff. Now, I'm not saying no one ever makes mistakes. I'm saying you can't intentionally live your life like a Bernie Madoff or somebody trying to rip people off as your, your sort of basic sense of who you are. It can't be done. And so if the Bible has this kind of authority, then it is by nature personal. And, this is what, and it's relational. This is what we see in Jeremiah. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it in their hearts. That's a very personal thing. It's relational. He said, they will know me, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people. The psalmist, wondering how this works and how one could bring their, alignment, their life into alignment with this story, says, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? And then answers, by living according to your word. And, and then gets at this very personal relational thing by saying, I've hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. That is to say that I might not live outside of this story. Again, perfection's not in view here. I don't mean that we all don't occasionally sin. We've probably already sinned today and it's only 10.30 or whatever. But that's not what I mean to say. What I'm talking about here is fundamental alignment. I've hidden the story of the Bible in my heart that I might not live outside of it, something like that. And so the psalmist says, teach me your decrees. I recount all your laws. I rejoice in following your statutes. I meditate on your precepts. I consider your ways. I delight in your decrees, and I will not neglect your word. See, what's happening here is this is not like a policeman to a driver saying 55 miles an hour. What's happening here in the psalmist's heart is not an, an obscure abstract law code to a law student. And its intention is not to simply dispel ignorance. What's happening here is a dynamic relationship. It's practical, ongoing guidance and transformation that answers the deepest longing of our hearts. What really matters? How are you going to answer that question outside of an ongoing story that had divine intention, 
launch the story, has a divine telos, and it will hit that end. How are you going to answer the question, what, else, what really matters, apart from that story? And of course, I would say it can't be done, and then I would say look around at our society, at all the people who are trying to answer it in some other way than finding the authority of this relational storytelling God in the Bible. So what really matters? How do we know how to live? How do we know who and what to trust? How do we know how to love? And this is what, again, the psalmist is getting at. He's really saying something like, not I, I relate to what you're saying like a law student relates to a law book. No, he's saying something like, I delight in what you tell me about living. I ponder every morsel of wisdom from you. I attentively watch what you're doing here in this story. I relish it, and I won't forget a word of it. That's more what's going on. This is an enthusiastic person wanting to live in God's story. Well, in the gospel reading this morning, when we see Jesus is interacting with God's story, we see anguish on the one hand and promise on the other. We see revelation and we see threat. And the passage in Hebrews tells us this morning that Jesus learned trusting obedience by what he suffered. Jesus himself says he's troubled by the way this story is unfolding. So just want you to think about this. Jesus troubled, plus save me from this hour, plus Father glorify your name. See, the, see those, passage, those phrases in the gospel passage? Jesus is troubled, save me from this hour, Father glorify your name. What you see there is the most precise revelation of spiritual formation that maybe we can find anywhere because this is Jesus bending, forming himself to God's will and to God's story. Even when it's troubling and precisely when it brings deep anguish, he's bending, he's forming himself to God's agenda. Well, this is, I want to suggest to you, this is the overflow of the richly interactive relationship that's suggested in our readings in Jeremiah and the Psalm. So yeah, Jesus is full of anguish, but he's also resolute and confident, knowing that God is writing this script and that even when things seem to be unraveling, he continued to place himself in the story. Here's his explanation for it. You might want to look at this in your gospel reading. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, what Jesus is doing here is that he, in his typical brilliance, is setting in opposition God's story and the authority that's inherent in it with the story of the cosmos. The Greek word there for world is cosmos. And it means in this context the fallen realm, it means all that's estranged from and in opposition to God's purposes. It's kind of what the Apostle Paul means in his letters when he talks about principalities and powers. It's the structures and institutions that misshape us, that malform us as humans. If you don't think so, someday for the fun of it, I have students in my class here do this. I ask them to come to church here and ask what the liturgy of this church is saying. Then I ask them to go to South Coast Plaza and I ask them, tell me what the story that's being told there is. What's the liturgy of that mall? What are they asking you to do? What are they asking you to become? How do you know when you're winning at the mall? Because there are things in the cosmos that misshape us. They malform us as human beings. 
And Jesus is saying anyone who wants to keep that kind of life is actually gonna lose their life in the end, but anyone who's willing to let go of it, to challenge within us, and this is again at the heart of formation and at the heart of our Lenten season, to challenge the system that's driven by Satan, the ruler of the world, to challenge consumerism and racism and war and violence as a way of to defeat the other. Well, what if the other wasn't something to be defeated but something to be served? Even in your marriage, not to mention war, or not to mention hostile takeovers in the corporate world, or people who cheat in education, or the medical profession. What if somehow you were safe, and what if somehow you were secure in that sense, sort of stable and grounded in the authority of this story, such that we naturally worked against these things? See, Jesus is living in a different story. This is what he means when he says, my kingdom is not from this world, from this cosmos. My kingdom is not of this system. That's why it doesn't make sense politically. It doesn't make sense in terms of your normal religious explanations. It doesn't make sense in terms of sociology. It doesn't make any sense. It's because my kingdom is not from this system. When you see the word cosmos or world, when it means world in your Bible, just think the system, capital T, capital S. My kingdom is not from this system, Jesus says, or my followers would be fighting. But they're not fighting because their sense is they're with me serving. So how does the word of God function in spiritual formation? The scriptures reveal the divine intention for cooperative friends. They tell a story that invites our participation as the cooperative friends of God. And from creation, we're hardwired in that direction. I don't know about you, but unfortunately, my lifelong sins have kind of fried those wires. And so in formation, I'm taking the broken parts of me and I'm connecting them to this story that God's inviting me to participate in. And that story then has an organizing, orienting kind of force in my life. And while it has truthful statements associated with it, it's not those truthful statements that animate my sense of myself. What animates my sense of myself is God's up to something and I'm in it with him. This explains, and I'm done with this, this explains, by the way, the difference between David and Joseph. So you think David, he sees Bathsheba. As we would, might, as kids might say today, she was hot. So he sees Bathsheba. And think of the lines that he has to cross to get there. Military, religious, social, family, economic. He has to cross practically every line there is in humankind to somehow justify in his life that he has to have her. See, that's living out of a story in your own little head that says what has to happen right now, uh, and and this is really important. You, You know how they say that sex is mostly in your head? That it's really not mostly in our body parts, it's in our head? See, this is what's going wrong with David. It's not that a certain part of his body part touched a certain part of her body part. What's going on is that his head's disrupted. And he's willing to cross almost every line there is in this story that's trying to pull him into one way. He's crossing all these lines to get there. We'll contrast that with Joseph. Potiphar's wife comes on to him. You remember the story. And he refuses, and she continues to come on to him. But listen to what Joseph says. Listen to his head. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? 
I'm doing a work for God, and he's prospering my work. And this prosperous work is necessary for the well-being of my whole nation. I cannot injure this relationship and thwart this task. You see the difference? Joseph has this sense. What, what's guiding Joseph in his sense of sexual authority is not that it says somewhere necessarily, you know, don't commit adultery or whatever. No, that's not what's driving him at that moment. I'm sure Joseph would agree, yeah. But what's driving him is I'm in a relationship with God, and he and I are up to something together. I'm trying to live in this story. I'm trying to form my life according to this, so Joseph says, I can't. I'm not going to injure this relationship. I'm not going to thwart this task. So what happens between us and the Bible in formation is that we're kind of like a moth drawn to this bright light where something's calling me home to my original engineering, to my first created kind of wiring, and helping me take all those broken bits and rearrange them and fit them into this authoritative story.